Welcome to House of David Ministries. I'm Pastor Eric. And I'm Gabriella. Join us as we learn about the rich heritage of our Christian faith. In each episode, we explore a unique topic that will deepen your knowledge of Christ and who we are as His people. Hello and welcome to another House of David podcast. For those of you who are new to House of David, we are a teaching ministry that helps Christians understand their biblical heritage and connection to Israel. In our last podcast, we discussed different types of supersessionism, otherwise known as replacement theology, and concerns about the silence of the American church in the face of much evil happening in Israel and around the world. I'm here again today with Pastor Eric. And in this podcast, we are going to explore some of the root causes of replacement theology and how it affects the church's views towards Bible prophecy, specifically concerning the restoration of Israel. Pastor Eric, where does supersessionism come from? Well, that is a great question, and it is one that I've actually been exploring for quite some time. And I'll just say this. I think it's often a little bit too easy to dismiss replacement theology as just another form of anti-Semitism. So as Christians, we see the underlying root of all hatred coming from the human heart that is sick and is in desperate need of a healer. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9, verse 12, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And Isaiah said in chapter 1, verse 5, the whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. So even sickness has an underlying cause. Well, going back to scripture, we find that, the, of course, the first human sin was caused by pride. Adam and Eve desired to become like God or to become their own God. And that's why they ate from the forbidden tree of knowledge. They felt that it would make one wise to become like God, to have his same knowledge. And this original sin led to the separation of mankind from God and their banishment from his presence and from the Garden of Eden. But it doesn't take long, and then we read about the second sin in the Bible, which was envy. And Cain killed Abel because Abel brought a more acceptable offering to the Lord. So here the first sin separates us from God, and we lose our identity as his children, and we become orphans. And the second sin we read about in the Bible causes orphaned humanity to try and reestablish its purpose for existence apart from God. And in doing so, we find value in ourselves by competing against others who we see as having lesser value. And that's just the way of the world. So when hardships arise, we tend to blame those that are in our way or threaten our survival. So apart from God, humanity has created this pecking order. Those that are at the top are valued for what they have accomplished or accumulated in this world, and those that are at the bottom are seen as inferior and at times even inhuman. And they're only worthy of serving or being enslaved to those who have succeeded in this world. But out of this fallen world, God has chosen this one small and insignificant people group to become his chosen and beloved and favored nation, which is Israel. And the Jews had found their value in the one true God of the universe, the one who created everything. And yet still this same God seemingly had rejected all of the other nations and had prohibited Israel from intermarrying or making any covenants with them. 
And that's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, he says, At that time, he's speaking to the Gentiles, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in this world. And so envy arose that caused this jealousy, and anti-Semitism took root in the hearts of the Gentiles. And when the Jews thrived, the world hated them. And when the Jews suffered, the world rejoiced. Now, generalizing, of course, there have always been people that have loved the Jewish people, but I'm, I'm generalizing. But Jesus didn't come only to save Israel. He died to save the whole world. And he told his disciples in John chapter 10, verse 16, Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, and them also I must bring. They will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now, I really love this verse because it really speaks to the kingdom of God, to Christ's kingdom. So Jesus is saying that he has many nations, many people, including his firstborn nation, which is Israel. And he must bring all of these other nations together with Israel to become one flock so that he can be our one shepherd. This verse also shows that there is now equality between the Jewish people and the Gentiles, between Israel and the nations. Because in Christ, we become one people of God. But while we are one people, there are also many families, and so there's much diversity in God's kingdom. So that's why Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one, in Christ Jesus. And Paul wasn't saying that women become men or Jews become Greeks or vice versa. He was really saying that in terms of our salvation, we are all one in Christ and that we all stand before God as equals. And that's why he then says in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 6 that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. In Ephesians 2, Paul tells us that Jesus abolished the enmity between Jew and Gentile and created in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace and reconciling them both to God. But what happened in the church to cause Gentiles to turn away from Israel? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And we only know bits and pieces from church history found in the book of Acts, the writings of the church fathers, and a few other historical sources such as Josephus. But something did dramatically change, and it appears that the root of the division goes back even to the apostolic church, which is the the first century church. And that's why Paul's writings to the church in Rome, especially chapters 9 through 11 in the book of Romans, talk about what the church was not supposed to do in terms of this separation from its foundation, from separation from the Jewish people. In chapter 11, Paul asks this rhetorical question, and he says, has Israel stumbled that they should permanently fall? And then he says, absolutely not. Instead, he says that through Israel's stumbling, in other words, by them missing their Messiah, missing Jesus, that God has given to the Gentiles the message of salvation, and I would add also the calling and the responsibility to share the gospel with the whole earth, especially the Jewish people, for the purpose of provoking Israel to jealousy. And then he goes on to say that if Israel's stumbling means spiritual riches for the Gentiles, 
how much more will their salvation mean for the return of Christ and the ushering in of the millennial kingdom? Now, we're going to talk about that more in another episode, the 1,000-year kingdom of Christ. But uh, coming back to Romans, Paul goes on to say that some of the Jewish people were cut away from Israel. And the Gentiles, he calls them a wild olive tree, he says were grafted in amongst Israel, contrary to nature. In other words, they've been grafted in amongst them to now share in the spiritual riches of the foundation of Israel, the foundation that God gave to Israel. And this foundation includes the sharing in all of the covenant promises, all of the blessings, and all of the inheritances that God had promised to the Jewish people. So Paul is talking about the kingdom of God, which, is, which essentially includes the restoration of Israel. And so for this reason, Paul warned the Gentiles not to think of themselves more highly than the Jewish people or speak prideful words against them. But to remember that as, the, as Gentiles, you're not supporting the root, but the root, which and he refers to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, actually supports the whole church. That is the foundation. And of course, Abraham is called the father of us all. He is the father of the faith of all the Jewish people and the nations, the Gentiles, the Christians that are all grafted in to this one cultivated olive tree. So because of Israel's unbelief, Paul says that there were branches that were broken off or removed from God's kingdom. And yet he is admonishing the Gentiles to just simply stand humbly in their simple faith and not to be proud, but to fear God. And he says, for if God did not spare the Jewish people because of their lack of faith, he might not spare the Gentiles either. But then Paul counsels the Gentiles in uh, Romans 11, verse 25. He says, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, meaning the full number of those of the nations who are to receive Christ and come into the kingdom of God. So Paul says that all of the natural branches will be saved when Jesus returns. So Gabby, why don't you go ahead and read for us Romans 11, verses 26 through 29. The deliverer will come out of Zion. And now Zion is the place of God's holy habitation, which is the church. And he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, and now this is referring to Israel's unique chosen status. They are beloved for the sake of the fathers, the patriarchs, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Yeah, amen. The gifts of the Spirit are irrevocable. And so is God's calling for Israel, including their responsibility to carry the oracles of God and ultimately to bring the message of salvation to the ends of the earth and to be this blessing to the nations, to fill the whole world with the fruit of the Spirit. So God has a plan for Israel and the Jewish people. And the millennial kingdom, which again, we're going to come back and talk about a little bit later, is intricately part of this plan. In other words, without it, God cannot fulfill his promises to Israel. And so we're living in what is called the time of the Gentiles, because Israel for a season has turned away from God, and God has for a season turned to the nations. And 
given the nations the responsibility for carrying the gospel, the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so the church is now fulfilling that purpose. But God has a plan to return back to Israel and bring them into the place that he had promised to them. And yet, despite Paul's clearly written letter filled with warnings to the Gentiles, divisions continued to arise. So what happened to the church? Yeah, interestingly, Paul writes about this in his book to Rome, the book of Romans. And it's interesting because he never visited the church in Rome, nor did he have anything to do with how it was established. And yet somehow he had heard that there were problems or divisions that were arising in the church in Rome concerning their views about Israel and the Jewish people. Now, some scholars tend to correlate this separation or division to the Nicene Creed that was written during the First Council of Nicaea around 325 AD. But the Book of Romans was written in the first century. So clearly this problem of division between the Gentiles and the the Jewish people predates the Nicene Decree by several hundred years. The Nicene Decree took place during the early formation, what we call the Roman Catholic Church. But, you know, I discovered that there were earlier roots of separation that go back to the first and second centuries. I found similar rejections in the Coptic Church that was established in Egypt and North Africa around 42 AD. I found divisions in the Assyrian Church. It was also called the Church of the East, which started during the first century. And I found divisions in the Greek Orthodox Church that was also established during the first century. So there's this one narrative that I found by a church father called, his name is Tertullian. And he writes this writing called An Answer to the Jews. And it's interesting, we have to remember that, you know, the church fathers, all of the church fathers from 100 AD to 800 AD, none of them were Jews. They're they're all Gentiles coming from different parts of, of the world. And none of their writings are canonical, meaning there's none of the writings of Tertullian or Augustine or Jerome or any of these other church fathers are actually in the canonized scriptures, none of them. So when they're writing these things, these are just really their opinions or their commentaries. And so we have to understand that. And yet their opinions and commentaries commentaries have been misused or in some cases improper commentaries have been used to foster anti-Semitism. And so let's, gonna, let's go through this writing uh, in, in answer to the Jews, and we're going to dig down and see how there is clearly anti-Semitic sentiment that is written into this writing. Now, Tertullian was born in North Africa, in Carthage, around 150 AD. So again, this is clearly during the time of the, the church fathers called the Patristic Era. Now, he wrote most of his writings in Latin, and he wrote apologetic writings to the Romans and other essays which defended Orthodox Christianity. So those were good things, actually. And Tertullian is considered one of the principal fathers of Christianity, and he's often one of the most quoted writers of the pre-Nicene Church. The Nicene Decree, again, came about in 325 AD, about 150, 175 years later. Now, in the first several paragraphs of his writing in this narrative and answer to the Jews, we begin to understand how supersessionism or replacement theology entered the church. His narrative originates from a dispute between two people who were passionately reasoning and articulating their differences. 
And it was an incredibly intense argument. And he says their battle was so hostile that the truth became clouded. In other words, this, this fight became personal and their personal judgment became clouded. So they were probably chopping each other down and demeaning each other. And so they says there was no longer a civil discussion about discovering God's truth, iron sharpening iron. None of that was happening. It was just a fight. Interesting. Some things never change. So what exactly were these two men fighting over? Yes, exactly. What were these men fighting over? Well, I'm going to read here one of the opening lines. It happened very recently that a dispute was held between a Christian and a Jewish proselyte. And he says that the men were fighting to demonstrate that the other person was not worthy of God's grace. They were arguing whether the Gentiles were subject to God's Mosaic law as an additional requirement for salvation. The reason I find that this writing particularly interesting in part is because this issue about the law of Moses and circumcision was actually settled in the council in Jerusalem. Paul was actually the one who was sent up to Jerusalem from Antioch and delivered the message back to the church. But here you have this proselyte and this Christian man arguing over the law. Tertullian points out that the man arguing the law on behalf of the Gentiles, again, was indeed himself a convert to Judaism. He was a proselyte. But then Tertullian adds his own conclusion to the argument. This is what he says, quote, God promised to Abraham that in his seed should be blessed all nations of the earth. And that's great. He's talking about the coming of the Messiah. But then he goes on to say that out of the womb of Rebekah, two peoples and two nations were bound to proceed. Those of the Jews, that is, of Israel. And of the Gentiles, that is ours. So he's clearly referring to himself as a Gentile. Each then was called a people and a nation, lest any should dare to claim for himself the privilege of grace. For God ordained two peoples and two nations as about to proceed out of the womb of one woman. Somehow Tertullian has come to believe that God intended to create two distinct people groups, Israel, who he says remains subject to God's law, the law of Moses, and the Gentiles, the church, who are subject only to God's grace. And again, this view completely contradicts what we read in John 10, verse 16, where Jesus said, Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. And of course, you know, Paul was very clear that there's only one path to salvation and not two, as Tertullian states, being one through the law of Moses, the other through Christ's atoning work on the cross. That view is called dual covenant theology, which is unbiblical. Paul says we're all saved through faith by grace in Christ, both Jew and Gentile. In Acts 15, verse 11, it says, but we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we, speaking of the Jews, shall be saved in the same manner as they, the Gentiles. Tertullian is responding to what he perceives as Israel's pride against the Gentiles. In other words, he sees their separateness and their uniqueness or unique qualities that they hold under the law of Moses as somehow prideful. In other words, that that makes them prideful against the Gentiles. But in doing so, he, Tertullian, has also become dangerously blind to the truth, and he falsely declares that God plan to create two separate people groups. One group, the Gentiles, who comp now comprise the church, and the Jews who make up Israel. And yet again, we know from Scripture this was never God's intention. 
Paul says in Romans 11, verse 17, and he's speaking to the Gentiles. He says, you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them. And he's talking about Israel. And with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. And Paul is using this analogy of a cultivated olive tree to show us that there is to be one people, one, one family, one universal family. But this family, this group, is comprised of natural and wild olive branches, Jews and Gentiles. And again, as Jesus declared, there's going to be one flock and one shepherd. So Tertullian has somehow become wise in his own opinion, thinking that he has somehow figured out God's kingdom for the church or kingdom plans for the church apart from Israel. And again, Paul had warned the Gentiles not to do so. Now, if we continue reading, we find that Tertullian becomes even more resonant and hardened against the Jewish people. So I'm going to read here, quote, For this fact that Gentiles are admissible to God's law is enough to prevent Israel from priding himself on the notion that the Gentiles are accounted as a little drop of a bucket or else as dust out of the threshing floor. Accordingly, through the edict of the divine utterances, the prior and greater people, that is, the Jewish people, must necessarily serve the less, and the less people, that is, the Christian, overcome the greater. So, he's perceived that there is this superiority, that the Jewish people portray themselves as superior, or better than, or greater than, the Gentiles. And that the, Gen the Gentile Christians are somehow subservient to the Jewish people. And yet he's saying that that's exactly the opposite of what must happen, that the Christian must overcome the greater, overpower the greater, and take control over God's kingdom. So he's saying that Israel's pride under the Mosaic law relegates the Gentiles, and quote, to, you know, as I just read, a little drop of a bucket or as dust out of the threshing floor. In other words, he equates Israel's response to God's sanctification laws, which under the Old Covenant left the Gentiles out of God's plan of salvation, as Jewish pride, arrogance. And so he challenges God's sovereign election of Israel. And yet the wall of separation established under the law of Moses and its enmity with the Gentiles, while it was real, this wall was to be torn down once Christ fulfilled the law of atonement by offering his sinless body as a sacrifice for all humanity to both Jew and Gentile. And again, Paul addresses the removal of this separation in Ephesians chapter 2. So Gabby, go ahead and read for us chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who, who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. Yeah, amen. I love this verse. 
He has made both one. And again, this ties in perfectly with what Jesus said, that there would be one flock and one shepherd. And the term one new man, actually the Greek, probably the more accurate translation is one new humanity. All people, male and female, of every tongue and tribe that God is bringing us together as one people of God. So this argument that starts out between essentially two Gentiles, one a convert to Judaism, a proselyte, has now somehow concluded with the damnation for all of Israel. Yes, the conflict and division between the church and the Jewish people has been going on for almost 2,000 years, and it's a painful and bloody history and in complete opposition to Jesus' commands of love and unity. But there has to be some deeper underlying cause to Tertullian's response. Yeah, I think that there is. You know, Tertullian's response likely comes from his own fear and insecurity that is caused by a wounded soul, or going back to what I said at the very beginning, an orphaned spirit. This wound, I believe, came out of the fall of humanity, the fall from the Garden of Eden, and has left humanity with this identity crisis about who we are. And our subsequent separation from God, when Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden, has left us orphaned in a fallen world. Orphaned children often have identity issues because they want to know who their father is. They want to know who their parents are. Tertullian's distaste for Israel is really about sibling rivalry. He is desperately seeking his own identity in God the Father without having to associate himself with the nation of Israel or the Jewish people. So in essence, he is refusing to accept Israel's election as God's firstborn child, and he might even be trying to steal the honor and rights of his elder brother. Paul reminds the church in Rome, in Romans 2 verse 10, he says, Glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so Paul here is recognizing the, the honor that should be given to the firstborn child. Now, in terms of our salvation, there is equality for Jew and Gentile. There isn't a second position in the kingdom. But there is a firstborn. So that's why Paul says in Romans 10, verse 12, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon his name. But the Jewish people will always remain God's firstborn. So firstborn implies that God has other children, right? Because there has to be a second and a third and a fourth. And he loves them equally. You don't love one child more or less than the other. But with the firstborn comes a right of inheritance and a special honor that God will never take away or give to another. That honor, as Paul says here again, is reserved for the Jew, for the Jew first. So Tertullian has refused to allow himself to be essentially grafted into Israel. And sadly, he has turned against Israel's election. And Paul made this point abundantly clear when he said in Romans 11, verses 28 and 29, He says, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. So Israel was responsible for sharing the good news of the gospel and the message of salvation with all the nations, all the Gentiles. In Isaiah 42, verse 6, it says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people and a light to the Gentiles. 
Now, it's clear this verse in Isaiah refers to Jesus. But it's also speaking about the irrevocable calling of Jesus' ministry, where he has commissioned to the Jewish people to carry his light and truth and his new covenant to the nations. And Paul actually used the scripture to affirm his ministry and Barnabas' ministry to the Gentiles. In Acts 13, verse 47, it says, For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And so, as a Jewish man, Paul understood that his calling was irrevocable, and it will never change for himself or for Israel, and that he and Barnabas were called to go be a light to the Gentiles, to bring the light of God, to bring the good news of the gospel to the Gentiles, and that is exactly what they did. And sadly, Tertullian sees Israel, the firstborn, the older son, as somehow superior to the Gentiles, like they are somehow better than. And rather than honoring his elder brother position and the honor that is due the elder brother and then embracing his unique place and calling in God's kingdom as an equal with the Jewish people, with his elder brother, Tertullian, I believe, is attempting to self-affirm his sonship and even maybe trying to steal the birthright of the firstborn son by declaring that God has a better plan. In other words, that the church now supplants Israel. And yes, scripture is absolutely clear. Exodus 4.22, the Lord declared, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Yet God always had this singular plan for both Israel and the Gentiles. And again, Paul used this analogy of a cultivated olive tree to show the two branches, the wild branch and the cultivated branch is one tree. And the prophets of the Old Testament foretold of this coming together of the Jews and the Gentiles. In Zechariah chapter 2, verse 11, Zechariah said, Many nations, meaning Gentiles, shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people, and I will dwell in your midst. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The God of Israel has called the Gentiles by his name. And the prophet Amos declared in Amos 9 verse 2, And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does this thing. Paul affirmed these prophets when he said in Romans 9 verse 24, Whom he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. It's mentioned over 200 times in scripture that God is called the God of Israel and yet he's not exclusively the God of the Jewish people. As it says, is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? That's from Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Yes, he is the God of the whole earth, but he's called the God of Israel. And the Gentiles have been joined to the God of Israel and grafted into his people. Yeah, amen. So again, when Jesus said he had other sheep that he would bring into this fold, he had intended to bring the Gentiles to himself and join them with Israel, with the Jewish people. And again, he said there would be one flock and one shepherd in his kingdom. And this one group is called the church. In Greek, we use the word ekklesia. In Hebrew, the word is kahal. And it's accurately translated as the great assembly. So this one assembly is a new creation in Christ comprised of every nation, every tongue and tribe and nation and people. And we see this in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. It says, You, and it's speaking to the Lamb, were worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and nation and people. I'm really looking forward to continuing this fascinating discussion. 
In our upcoming episodes, we will be discussing the distinction between Israel and the church and how the millennial kingdom is tied to the restoration of Israel. We're also going to talk some more about the early church fathers and discuss some of their theological viewpoints and how they correlated with or in some instances contradict God's promises to restore national Israel. Thank you, Pastor Eric, and thank you all for joining us today. Please continue to pray for God's hand of protection to be over Israel. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem and for the hostages to return home. And most importantly, for the people of Israel to know their Messiah, Yeshua. We look forward to you joining us next time on House of David podcast. If you have enjoyed this podcast from House of David Ministries, make sure you subscribe to our channel and don't forget to visit our website where you can sign up for our monthly newsletter. We pray the Lord richly bless you and we look forward to having you join us again for our next episode.